Thank you so much um, for having us, first of all. Thank you to Skylight Books, and thank you to Carolina for sitting up here with me. Um, so yeah, hello everyone. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Um, and I guess I'll start off by reading a little bit from And Again. Um, for those of you who are uninitiated, it's a book that's speculative fiction. Um, it's about a group of terminally ill patients who are given cloned versions of themselves to cure their diseases. So essentially their memories are transferred into brand new versions of their own bodies. And uh, I'm just, I think I'll just start at the beginning to give you a little taste of the first point of view character whose name is Hannah. <clears throat> Maybe it's like being born. I don't know. It's impossible to compare it to something I cannot remember. When I finally come back to myself, it takes me a moment to realize I haven't died. I choke my way back to consciousness, my eyes full of milky brightness, my heart a seismic pulse of energy inside me. I reach out, fumbling for something to anchor me here. I am lost, panicked, and adrift with the idea of death when the room begins to take shape around me. Details sharpen, forms appear. It's a small room with a window. Everything is colorless, washed out and overtaken by light, unfamiliar. Then I register the smell, the metallic bite of antiseptic in the stale air, and know that I'm still alive. It's a hospital smell. And even though I'm disoriented and sleep-addled and half-blind, I know for certain that heaven would never smell like this. I take a breath, try to slow my heart and pay attention. People will want to know what it's like, how it feels being born for a second time. They will want it to be tunnels of light and choruses of angels, messages from the other side. They will want God to have something to do with it. But it feels more like waking from a night of heavy drinking than anything profound. I feel wrung out and groggy, dehydrated. I blink against the brightness of my room, breathing deep the acrid hospital smell, and realize that I'll probably have to lie to them. Sam is sitting by the window. He looks older in these shades of white and gray, gaunt and worn and sapped of blood, as if all of his lingering boyishness has finally been wrung out of him, and suddenly his dark hair and sharp nose, the unshaven shadow around the calm fullness of his mouth, all of these things serve to make him look hardened. Even from here, I know it's his eyes that have changed the most, lingering somewhere far off, the pain in them, I think of my first drawing class in high school, how the teacher taught us always to begin a portrait with the eyes, how you can map a whole face once you get the eyes right. The sight of him brings with it a relief that is so potent I could cry. He's here. I try to say something, but the words are hot little barbs that stick in my windpipe. Sam glances up at the small sound I make, as if he's shocked to see me there. He moves toward me and reaches for the side table, retrieving a cup, and offers me a spoonful of ice chips. You're okay. It's the respirator. They took it out a half hour ago. I accept the ice, and it's shockingly vivid. The taste of it like cold chlorine, blunting the soreness as I swallow. He glances down, taking my hand and squeezing it, almost to the point of pain. He looks afraid. I wish I could tell him that I'm all right, but I can't speak, and I'm not even sure if it's true anyway. Has the transfer worked? Is it supposed to feel like this? Sam pushes a button next to my bed, calling a nurse. I shake my head, wishing I could tell him not to. I need a bit more time to wade into this like the waters of an icy pool, slowly so as not to shock the system. 
But then I notice my hand, the right one, the one he's holding so insistently. And for the first time, my eyes register a color. Red. My hand is bleeding. The IV catheter hanging loose, a piece of medical tape curling where it was pulled free from my skin. Great work, Hannah. I haven't been awake for five minutes, and already I've managed to draw blood. And my nail polish is gone. Penny came by yesterday afternoon and painted my fingernails a slippery wine color when the nurses weren't watching. Harlot, she'd said, showing me the label on the top of the bottle, giving me that crooked smile of hers. I told her there was no point. After all, what did a discarded body need with red fingernails? But she'd insisted, and I was too weak to even consider arguing. Now my nails are bare. It hits me, the certainty that I've shrugged off my former self and taken root within something else. I think of a snake shedding its skin, leaving the dry, crusted remains to the whims of the sun and desert sky. A nurse hustles in, stopping briefly to shine a tiny light into my eyes that feels like it's piercing my brain, and then attends to my damaged hand. She pulled it out when she was waking up, Sam explains, as if we've accidentally broken something very valuable in someone else's house. See, she, she seems disoriented. The nurse nods. It takes a few minutes for their eyes to adjust to the light, she replies, packing the back of my hand with gauze and fastening it in place with medical tape. Some of the others had said they couldn't see anything at first. But she can see now, right? Sam asks. Of course, the nurse replies, peeling her gloves off and tossing them in a waste bin. She can hear, too. I know that, Sam says, reddening. It's habit for him now, managing me and my care and my disease with little input from me. I've been a passenger in my own illness ever since the beginning, with Sam squarely at the helm. The doctor should be by in a few minutes, the nurse says, scribbling something in my chart and heading for the door. When they're done, I'll be back to put in the new IV. Sam sits next to my bed, his fingers around my wrist, sparing my damaged hand. It's quiet again, quiet but for the beep of the machines next to my bed, and all of a sudden it's too much. I want Sam to say something, to look me in the eyes, but he does neither. You're here, I whisper through the rasp in my throat. Sam glances up. Of course, of course I'm here. I was afraid you would be gone, I think. So that's Hannah. She's the first of four patients who are given this miracle cure, essentially given new bodies um, to cure them of their terminal illnesses. Uh, So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit now. Um, I apologize for the spoilers for any of you who are not um, so far in the book, but uh, this is a scene where Linda, who's a character who was um, who had a traumatic brain in, uh, injury that left her paralyzed from the nose down for eight years. Um, she has just rejoined her family at home. And so um, this is a little bit of a scene about the trouble that she's having, sort of reconnecting with her husband Tom and her children, Jack and Katie. The grocery store is so huge and bright and full of people that I think I might pass out. Aisle upon endless aisle is stocked with thousands of products, all with their own brightly colored packaging, leaving barely enough room for people to snake their shopping carts through. Music clamors over everything. I feel sick. For so long, I've been used to processing only one thing at a time that I'm unable to, fight, to face this onslaught of, stimu- of stimuli. Things flash in and out of my peripheral vision. Somewhere in the store, there's a child screaming, and the sound shreds my nerves. I didn't remember how terrifying the world was at its full size. 
I follow Tom and Jack and Katie in our little convoy as Tom pushes the shopping cart and the kids load it with groceries. There's a practice nature to this mayhem, and I imagine that they've done exactly this every weekend for years. I follow behind, watching them, getting in the way of everyone around me. I seem to always be in someone's path, blocking the item that he or she is trying to reach. I bump into more than one person and forget that I should apologize when that sort of thing happens. I'm so used to being in one place and having the pieces of my world orbit me like tiny moons that sometimes I forget that people are, the people around me can actually see me. Being home, being around people, my children, is, entirely, is an entirely different type of difficulty than being in the hospital. I'm the routine breaker, the one who staggers out of bed at odd hours, who is preoccupied by the textures of things, losing the threads of conversations as I run my hands over the objects and surfaces around me. Tom makes them change the channel so I can watch Stratford Pines on the flat screen. I am the intruder, stopping hushed conversations between Katie and Tom when I enter a room. I thought Katie would be the easier one when I returned home, the one who would remember me from the years before the accident. But instead it's Jack, my baby, who brightens when he sees me, who wants to show me his collection of Ninja Turtles figures, who needs me with an insistence that borders on the absurd, stranger that I am. When Katie has stopped, while Katie has stopped bursting into tears in front of me, she remains remote, considering me like some foreign cousin who has come to visit, someone she understands little and likes even less. We're stopped in the cereal aisle. There's a log jam of carts right in the middle, and Tom is waiting patiently for his turn to weave through while the kids are scooting around him, trying to de- decide if they want the cereal with the pirate on the box or the one with the leprechaun. They get to pick one box of cereal a week, Tom told me, as if he were relaying vital, top-secret parenting information. Once it's gone, they're back to cornflakes for breakfast. I nodded, thinking about the books I used to read on nutrition and child development, the way I had homemade granola and almond milk for them in the mornings instead of sugary bits of puffed rice, dyed bright colors. My former self could have been such a good mother, I think, if she were only given the chance. Now I am lost in a sea of fluorescent lighting and and flashing machines that distribute coupons hanging from the shelves. I shut my eyes, willing it all away. When I open them again, they catch on a display of chocolate bars wrapped in colored foil. Labels promise all matter of deliciousness, caramel and crispy rice and peanut butter. It's the sort of thing I never would have allowed myself in my previous life, back when I counted calories and ran five miles a day and bought organic produce. But I imagine it now, the rich sweetness of chocolate and caramel and saliva collects under my tongue. I want it, insistently. I want to cram the whole bar of candy into my mouth and chew it until my jaw aches. I want it with a vigor that's almost sexual, a riotous feeling, something I don't want to ignore for for fear it will disappear. I take a quick glance, left and right. Shoppers compare prices and peer at the nutrition labels on boxes of cereal. Tom has disappeared toward the other end of the aisle with the kids in tow. No one is looking at me. My fingertips spark with blood and excitement as I reach toward the display, plucking one of the bars from its place and jamming it into the pocket of my jacket. Someone turns toward me, so I pick up another bar and pretend to be reading the nutrition label on the back. I scowl and put it back in its place, as if it has profoundly disappointed me. Connie would be so proud if she saw my performance. It's only when I move down the aisle, fingering the prize in my pocket, being careful not to crinkle the foil wrapping for fear of giving myself away, that I realize I'm grinning. 
Excitement pours through me, a rush that makes me want to skip out of the store, run as fast as my new legs will carry me. I'm nearly effervescent with the thrill of my crime, but I remember the importance of the act, and I shake the smile from my face before Tom catches sight of me again. I thought we'd lost you there, he says. Nearly did, I reply, trying my best to look mystified and adrift in the cacophony of my surroundings. Jack runs up, jumping on the end of the cart and tossing a box of cereal in, holding on as Tom wheels him forward toward the end of the aisle. I decided on Lucky Charms this week, Jack says to me, and it's clearly a decision that has taken some real effort. Oh, I see, I say, nodding, wondering at how to respond to something as simple and inconsequential as a box of cereal. I wonder if this is why other parents constantly reprimand their children for the smallest of infractions, for running or speaking too loudly or demanding too much attention, because they don't know any other way of speaking to them. Katie comes up and drops her box of cereal into the cart. Wheaties, of course. Katie is on the basketball team at school, and everything in her world seems to revolve around the sport. I try and recall how I was at that age and can't quite remember back that far, now that everything has been clouded by the accident. She doesn't care about your cereal, Katie says to Jack, turning her accusatory eyes in my direction. Katie, give it a rest, Tom says, handing her the list. Go see if you can pick out some eggs, okay? Katie snatches the list from him and walks off, Jack following close behind her. Tom sighs but says nothing. After all, this is well-worn territory for us at this point in these months since I've been home. I eat the candy later in Tom's upstairs office while he's helping the kids with their homework. I smuggle it out of my coat pocket and tuck it into the back of my jeans before I scurry upstairs. It's half melted when I pull it out, but I don't care. I watch the setting sun from my window, the window in Tom's office, and peel back the foil wrapper with the carefulness of an archaeologist uncovering an ancient treasure. I don't eat it all in one bite. No, now the craving has transformed into the need to savor, to draw out the deliciousness of my crime for as long as possible. I take small bites, rabbit bites, letting the chocolate melt in my mouth and the caramel stick to my teeth. My body sings with it, the taste of it. I can almost feel the shiver of chemical pleasure run up and down my spine. This is mine, I think, a secret. I've made this mine. I stole a pair of panties from the sale bin at the Gap once when I was a teenager. I was the, it was the only other time I've ever stolen anything. They were black and lacy with a little fake gemstone in the front, and I yanked the tags off and stuffed them into my coat pocket while I was pretending to try on a pair of jeans. My friends were with me, and we walked out of the store in a little giggling pack. Out in the parking lot, we compared our haul, a camisole, a pair of earrings, a tube of lip balm, and my thong, and congratulated ourselves on being subversive and rebellious and young. I never told them how painful it was for me, walking out of that store with my sweaty hand balled around the knot of black lace in my pocket. There was no thrill for me. Instead, my my fear was colossal, even after we were out of the store and into the fresh air. I was certain the very moment that I thought I was safe would be the moment in which a security guard would clap me on the shoulder and demand I turn out my pockets. It wasn't until I was home, stuffing the contraband into the top drawer of my dresser and shutting it hard, that I began to feel normal again. I never wore those panties. They seemed to be forever a symbol of my own frailty, up until the point when Tom threw them away with the rest of my underwear. I knew shoplifting was supposed to be exciting. My friends did it a lot, pilfering makeup and jewelry and even the occasional t-shirt from a thrift shop or a department store. Anytime I received a birthday gift from one of them, I was pretty confident it it had been brought to me by way of someone's pocket or the inside of someone's bra. 
I even knew a teenage girl in college who, during the course of our freshman year, stole 12 cookbooks from the Barnes & Noble near campus. When I asked her why she only stole cookbooks, she shrugged. Why does anyone do anything, she asked in return. But now I understand it. Now, in the office at the top of the stairs, licking melted chocolate off the tips of my fingers, I finally know what it is to steal something and like it. It's not about what you steal. It's not even about escaping the prospect of getting caught. It's about cracking open a little sliver of freedom for yourself. It's slipping into that other world, the one in my head, where nothing bad ever really happens and there are no rules at all. I sit in that room and feel like I've finally traveled somewhere where no one can follow, not my doctors or my family or the people I know from my former life, and I am the only one who knows it. Thank you very much. That was great. Thanks. Uh, so I wanted to actually ask you a couple questions about yourself before we jump into the book. Great. Um, I noticed you were in the MFA program at UC Riverside, but you already have a book out in the world. Yes. So I wanted to ask you if you sold your book before the program, sort of how did that work? Um, I was in a master's of writing and publishing at DePaul University prior to coming to UCR, so I actually wrote the book um, in a novels class in that program. And I was sort of finishing up with it when I got accepted to UCR, I moved here, I came, and it was probably within the first two months that I was that I started at UCR in the program that the book sold. So I, you know, it was sort of in the works, I had my agent, um, I was finishing up at the end of the summer when I'd moved to Riverside. I was sort of locked myself away and was finishing up the final draft of it that was going to go out. And, uh, yeah, that happened pretty quickly after I moved here. So it was it was a pretty interesting couple of months. Um, but, yeah, it, it did sort of happen at the same time as I came here to, to Riverside. And sort of what was the trajectory of your writing life? Did you always want to be a writer or did it happen later? Um, I always wrote. Uh, I spent a lot of years trying to talk myself out of being a writer, I think, because I, um, when I was younger, I would think up these stories, and I would start them, and I would really you know, love the concepts that I would come up with and have a lot of fun sort of writing the beginnings of things. And then I didn't know that writing is hard, and it's not something that you can just do every day and love it every day, and it doesn't come easily. So I thought... Um, because I was so young and so inexperienced with it that after I got past that initial, like, oh, I'm starting a new project and got into the middle and it got hard, I thought that meant that I wasn't very good at it because I wasn't sure where things were going to go and I sort of struggled and got stuck. And so I thought, I'm not that good of a writer. Uh, So I spent a lot of years talking myself into trying other things. Um, I graduated with my BA in political science because I find political science fascinating and got into the real world and did an internship and was faced with getting a job and realized that the only thing that I wanted to do was jump back into school and be a writer. So that's what I did. Um, it feels like the thing that is that comes the most naturally to me of anything in my life. So I think it just I took the, the long road around to sort of get here. Right. If everything takes work, at least work do the work you like. Exactly. You know, everyone was saying, yeah, look at, you know, what you do for fun. What do you do for fun? And try to, you know, make that into a job. And I'm sure 
you know, my parents weren't like really thrilled when I stopped talking about law school and started talking about writing, but they've been incredibly supportive. My whole family has. So um, no, I, I think I think it was sort of self-evident once it, I started with it that it was where I was supposed to be. So um, I was curious. So this book is speculative fiction, and I was wondering if you've always been drawn to writing speculative fiction or how you came into it and what some difficulties were writing the book. Um, I've always been drawn to books that were beautifully written with interesting concepts behind them, concepts that tended to be speculative, uh, like books that I've loved were... And can you define what speculative fiction is for people? Well, that's actually kind of tough because a lot of people use it as an umbrella term for any... Um, any book that is written or any story that is written that doesn't exist in the world as we know it. So anything that asks sort of a what-if question. So uh, sci-fi, fantasy, um, you know, dystopian, like all of these things would be considered speculative fiction. And, I mean, some people define it differently, but that's sort of the the definition that I've run with over the years. Uh, But, I mean, I started out uh, in my MA program writing pretty mainstream literary fiction, you know, just the... um, the short stories that I think any beginner starts out writing in a program where they're trying to really impress their professors and um, you know emulate the things that they always read in literary magazines and <laughs> poorly imitate it. But uh, I, d- I took a speculative fiction course at DePaul and I had so much fun with it. You know, I, th- I thought of really, these really interesting concepts and started writing about them. You know, what would happen if we knew that the world was ending two years from now? You know, what would that ensuing time look like? And sort of wrote these these short stories that I loved so much, and it turned out that they were better than anything that I had been writing before because I wasn't trying to imitate anything or anyone. I was trying to just experiment with what this, you know, what the ramifications of the situation would be. And, I mean, it just, that, the fact that I had more energy going to these stories just made me a better writer, I think. So I think I naturally gravitated towards speculative fiction because I find it fascinating. And, I mean, there are so like Margaret Atwood or, you know, so many writers who have done it so successfully in the past who were sort of the writers that I gravitated towards. Um, like, Never Let Me Go was a huge book for me. Um... I'm blanking. There are so many. Children of Men, The Time Traveler's Wife. I mean, just so many books that I really enjoyed that were not set in the here and now as we're accustomed to dealing with it. And so, um, yeah, once I started writing that for myself, I just found that I was passionate about it. And I think when you're passionate about something, it's it automatically becomes better than anything that you're writing that you're not passionate about. So... Well, and it's interesting, too, to see that there's people providing a roadmap for you. Like, mm-hmm. it's not an impossibility. It's just, how am I going to find my way into the space of writing yeah, like this? Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, I feel like we're so into putting labels on things now and defining them that, I mean, people think of 1984 or Fahrenheit 451 or The Handmaid's Tale as being part of the literary canon. I mean, these are the books that you read in in AP English class in high school, and no one's defining them as speculative fiction. I think it's it's sort of a modern label that we're putting on things, but I I also think there's so much line blurring going on right now. Um, You know, if 
your Station Elevens or Age of Miracles or um, Life After Life, all these books that are sort of ask these speculative questions and are, are also so phenomenally beautifully written that they're getting so much attention from different camps, not just the sci-fi camps, but also the literary camps that I feel like, um, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of space for experimentation and for sort of um, traveling a new path. It is interesting, actually, now that I think about it, the literary fiction writers jumping into speculative fiction after they've written, like, one or two books, sort of saying, well, now I can try this. Mm -hmm. Why not? Yeah, I think a lot of um, writers are afraid of being pigeonholed. I mean, it's certainly something that I think about a lot, that I've started out with a speculative book, and I wonder, okay, you know, if I wanted to go back and write that you know, really literary novel, would they, you know, would I be okay with it? Like, you know, would, would people want to read it? Would it be Would they know how to market you? (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed, right? Well, it's crazy to think about, like, being put in a box, because you should be able to write whatever story sort of strikes you, Mm -hmm. and whether it's speculative or not, you shouldn't be expected to come out with one kind of story Mm -hmm. you know or um you know only literary fiction you should as a writer be able to do whatever you want yeah i wholeheartedly agree with that so um you have four characters in alternating chapters here and we heard from hannah and linda and i was wondering um if you found it difficult to juggle four povs and Why did you choose to structure it with four POVs? Um, Originally, I didn't. Originally, it was only from Hannah's perspective. So, and I'll give you a little background. I wrote it, I mentioned I wrote this in a novels class, and it was actually a really interesting experience that I had. Um, DePaul's on a system of 10-week quarters. So it was between winter and spring quarter of 2013. And the way the class was structured is that we wrote 60,000 words in the first 10 weeks, took a week off for spring break, and then revised that 60,000 words in the second 10-week quarter, uh, which was a crazy pace to be writing the first draft of a book and then revising it at. And we were all exhausted by the end, but it gave us, you know, sort of the raw material to go back and work with. You know, it it was the idea that you write your bad first draft. There's a, we used a different term for it, but um, you write a really bad first draft, and then but you know what it's about. You know you've got like once you've written the final word, you understand what the book is about. And so I wrote it all from Hannah's perspective, and sort of revised it in that second ten weeks, and then looked back at it and realized that I had done what a lot of beginning writers do, which is sheltered my protagonist and tried to make her really likable and tried to make her not get into too much trouble and what I ended up with was a character who was sort of boring and then all of these secondary characters that I had let get into trouble and say the wrong thing and be horribly selfish and do all of these things that make for interesting characters. So I spent the summer um, after this two-part novels course walking around thinking about Connie and Linda and David and found out that Hannah didn't interest me as much anymore, that the, the book had become something completely different because the side characters were the ones that I was the most emotionally invested in. So I decided to go back and write the other three points of view and Hannah's story got trimmed down a bit and the others got inserted. It was tough to juggle a little bit. I did a lot of outlining once I had gotten that initial first draft done because I, I sort of wanted to 
make sure that none of the beats like lined up for different characters, like that they weren't having important things happening to them simultaneously with another character, and that the book sort of evolved in a way that felt the pacing felt right. But um, I mean, it just became so obvious that it was what I had to do that once I was like, all right, I got to add three more points of view. That's what I ended up. I mean, I just sort of ran with it and hoped it turned out well. Yeah. Well, I think it's it feels like a necessity because each character is struggling with getting lucky, right? Mm-hmm. And the weight of luck. And they're all given a second chance and we're meeting them when they're wrestling with that luck. Yeah. So I think to only hold it to Hannah's perspective would be doing everybody else a disservice because everybody is having their own sort of fight with this luck. Um, Why did you choose to start sort of after, like one moment after they were getting the new bodies? Um, Well, first of all, because I don't know anything about science or cloning and (laughs) trying to explain that to people would kill the beginning of the book. Um, So I sort of wanted to start after the magic happens and really deal with the aftermath because as much as their respective conditions impacted them as characters, that was not the aspect that I wanted to look at. I wanted to look at, you know, what happens when you dodge a bullet. And for me, it's always a fascinating concept of, you know, you think something terrible is going to happen and it turns out okay, but you're sort of left with this lingering uncertainty, this sort of lingering sense that, um, you know, fate had dealt you this hand and something got turned around, but that something is still waiting in the wings to sort of dismantle your life. And in their case, it's sort of their own human nature that they end up, you know, doing a number on their own lives. Well, they're all trying to find a space for themselves Mm -hmm. when they've all planned to already die or in one character's case, they had been in a coma for a long time. So this thing that was anticipated didn't happen and they're sort of left behind saying, now what? Yeah. Which is really interesting. And I thought, you know, you spend the book unpacking that feeling of like trying to make a space for yourself again and sort of working with the memory of the life that they had versus this body that doesn't have any of the scars or sort of moments of their life on the body. And I was curious, sort of, you said you didn't do any research for uh, the clony aspect, but did you do research at all, sort of people perhaps coming out of comas or sort of how you deal with the body? Um, you know, I I really sort of took it from my own experiences. Um, just the people who I know who have dealt with serious illness, terminal or not. I mean, I've known, you know, people who have died of cancer and I know people who have had cancer and recovered fully and it, um, and what happens to the ones who recover and sort of dodge that bullet and what happens to their families and um, so it was more pulled from my life experience than anything else and sort of just trying to dive into that feeling and sit with it and um, you know, there's a line in, in the book about Hannah thinks her boyfriend is 
their entire relationship is going to be like him sleeping with a decaying stick of dynamite under his bed because it's like when is this going to happen again when is this you know going to recur when is the next terrible thing going to happen and um, in my experience with knowing people who have sort of recovered from really serious illnesses that is sort of what it feels like in the short term at least where you're like sort of walking a tightrope and hoping that nothing goes one way or another and you know you're sort of I feel like there's always you're always feeling like the hammer is about to drop and in some cases it doesn't but I feel like that does affect your you know your behavior and who you are as a person to sort of feel like there's something horrible around the corner potentially right but yeah what's interesting about this book is that no one's really behaving themselves (laughs) you know so they've gotten this opportunity to have a second life but they're all acting out in ways big and small and i thought that was a really interesting choice and i was curious we're talking about like ability over email sort of if you came upon this argument of, you know, the three female characters you have, they're behaving in ways that aren't necessarily likable mm-hmm. or they're not they're not grateful in a way. Yeah. Um, if you could speak to that, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I um I did struggle with that and I wanted to ask you about that in terms of the invaders as well, because uh, I feel like there's this unconscious, um, almost socialized desire to make your female characters likable, you know, and I feel like people respond to women misbehaving in novels a lot more negatively than men in some cases. I don't, I mean, and I do want your opinion on All cases? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, I had so much fun writing David, because he was allowed to be bad. You know, he was allowed to be this, like, roguish, sort of, um, you know, selfish and, you know, highly ambitious person who would sort of do whatever it takes. And the others I was a lot more concerned about, because, I mean, especially because one of them is a mother. And deals with maternal ambivalence and that's sort of like this the sin of all sins when it comes to women in our society so um and the others i mean they they do misbehave and i i did grapple with the idea of do these characters need to be likable and how far can i take them down the wrong path before readers are going to just hate them and i tried to take them as far as possible uh, I did rein in a couple of the storylines because I just, I mean, for me, it just got to the point where I was like, oh, okay, that that's too much. But I did try and take them as far as possible because it felt truer to the characters and it felt like, um, it felt like what, in certain in circumstances, what I would do in their shoes, uh, feeling unsure if you want to, go back to your family, to children who don't know you, or feeling like you've gotten your power back because suddenly you're beautiful again, and what would you do with that? You know, how would you leverage that in our society that values beauty so highly? Uh, so, I mean, it was, it was interesting to make them behave badly and sort of throw caution to the wind, but I, I did find myself reining them in a little bit, and I was wondering if you had the same sort of experience. It's funny because, so I have two alternating POVs, and I also had a lot of fun writing the male character because he was just really bad, but you sort of expect Mm -hmm. men and boys to act out, and it's okay. You know, they'll end up okay, but sort of women, it feels more dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't have... uh, 
I was only conscious about her being unlikable when people started telling me that she was unlikable. Yeah. And I was like, what? I've had that. <laughs> I've had people say, oh, I don't really like Hannah. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. And it, feel, it feels like a slight to me because I love these characters yes. and I've lived with these characters for a long time. So in a way, I think... At first, I was like, man, I didn't do my job. But then I think, well, people are complicated and they don't always make the right decisions. And you, I mean, we walk around all day long dealing with the aftermath of decisions we don't like, Mm -hmm. you know, that other people have made. So why are we looking for best friends in fiction, you know, or people who are always behaving in the way they should be? Uh, I just think that makes it boring. But... I'm curious if you had pushed back about likability from agents or publishers or if it was an internal... It was more internal. Um, It was more based on... It was a conversation that had gone on at DePaul a lot, um, especially particularly during this novels class, uh, because a lot of us were sheltering our protagonists and trying to make them likable because... I feel like you always start out trying to write the best version of yourself, or at least that was the experience that I had in this particular class. That a lot of us were writing young women who were sort of, you know, intelligent and a little bit gutsy, and you know, always chose the right thing because you're just, you know, they're like your children, and you're trying to send them off into the world and have them behave correctly. Uh, and the thing that my professor would always say is you know, make them do the things that you would never do. You know, put them into, like, torture them, essentially. Torture them as much as possible. Throw as much trouble at them as you can. And I feel like once I started doing that, and it was, I mean, it was funny because this was right after the 2012 elections, and... Again, I don't want to spoil anything, but I was like, what was the worst thing that I could potentially ever do in the eyes of my family, in the eyes of my own philosophy? And I was like, oh, getting involved with a Republican politician. That would be it. Um, so that that's sort of the impetus of Hannah's behaving badly. But I mean, it, it became... Um, something that I, I tried to do a little bit more once I had the original draft where she doesn't misbehave and was quite boring. I tried to go back and uh, and just look at all the ways that I could make her flawed and make her make poor choices and make her sort of <coughs> awful to the people in her life because it did feel truer and it did feel more interesting. Um, and But, I mean, in terms of... Um, there was there was a question. I sort of went back and forth a little bit on how to end Linda's story uh, because I feel like that was the one that I felt less um, certain of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, again, I don't want to give too much away, but she has a very difficult time re-entering her life with her family and her children. And I feel like there, there's a lot of ambivalence in her attitude toward her family and her children. And I felt like making a definite choice one way or the other uh, felt really difficult because I don't have children. And so I, I don't feel uh, t- too, uh, I don't know, connected to that experience beyond my experience with my parents so that was the toughest and that was the one that I sort of got other people's opinions on and went back and forth on it for a little while but I didn't get much pushback which was great yeah 
Were you like, hey, uh, how much do you love your kids? Would you leave them if you had an opportunity? Yeah. If, you, if you sort of felt like you didn't know them anymore and felt like they were... I feel like it says more about me as a potential parent than anything else that I'm like, would she leave? I feel like <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Only so, if they don't love me enough, right? Exactly, exactly. They're not really behaving all that well. <laughs> you know... Uh, okay, so my last question before we open it up is, what's next for you? I'm working on a thesis for the MFA program at UCR, and uh, it's another novel. It's another speculative novel, and it's also set in Chicago. I don't want to say too much about it because I just finished the first draft this past week. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. So it feels so new and like I have to get so much distance and from it and then look back on it and see if I can understand what it's actually about before I start describing it to other people. Um, but I don't know what I'm going to do when I'm no longer in graduate school where like there are deadlines and there are professors who are expecting to see your work. I have, I have no don't idea. Do it. it's gonna, okay. I'll just, I'll just keep going. I'll just yeah. get more degrees. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's next. I'm really excited about it and I'm having a wonderful experience in this program so I couldn't be I, I don't know I couldn't be happier with uh, with the way that the new one is going and it's probably because I just finished the first draft and yeah I'll you're back. on a high right yeah now. exactly next week you'll be depressed be like what am I doing with myself <laughs> exactly. and then you'll have to start revising yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> all right any questions I'll just offer that, like, Alex Espinosa, when he left UCR, he used to call me up and ask me to make up fake deadlines for him. Oh, yeah, I mean... I told him for five bucks, I would be like, you have to get that done July 1st. And he's like, oh, my God, thank you so much. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's, it's like, you really need people that you respect holding you to it sometimes. An app for that. That's very smart. No, I mean, it's funny, because I was, I was doing the 60,000 words in 10 weeks thing last spring quarter with Josh Emmons, and I sort of was like, Josh, do you mind if I just keep sending you pages over the summer? You don't have to read them, but just, I need to know that I still have deadlines. It's, I mean, it's really funny. Yeah, I've got a scowling Did you have any other classes when you were doing the 60,000 words? Oh, yeah. so yeah. intense. I had three other classes while I was doing the 60,000 words, and they all, I mean, I... I think I shortchanged all of my other classes when I was doing the 60,000. I know my friends thought that I was crazy because I wasn't doing anything. I wouldn't leave my room. It was like me and a bottle of whiskey alone, and all my, my roommates were very concerned about me for a little while. But no, I mean, it was, it's how I really like to write. I like to go quickly. I like to get ideas down on paper, and I find that if I get into the habit of writing every day, it's much easier for inspiration to find me when I'm actually sitting in the chair than, you know, if I'm out doing something else. I'm if I'm not the type of person who can wait for inspiration because it doesn't come along all that often for me. So if you write a first draft in 10 weeks, how many weeks, months, or years do you take to revise? Well, the first time it was two years from start to finish. So it was the initial 10 weeks and then the 10 weeks of revising that first draft and then the summer where I had to add in the extra three points of view and then I think it went through six drafts before it actually was published. So it was, it was a good two years from beginning to end. This time, I wrote the first 60,000 words in 10 weeks and wrote the next 70,000 words in the next, like in 
the next nine months. So, I mean, it's taken me almost a year to write just the first draft. So I think it's definitely a faulty system if you can't continue at that same pace, but life got in the way a little bit. Ah, life. (laughs) Any, uh uh-huh? So I know you don't want to talk too much about it, but does your new, um, your thesis, does it have multiple points of view as well? It does, yeah. There are two. Yeah. And they're... Male, female? Both female. Both female. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's... I mean, it's it's a great aunt and her her grand niece. So it's a woman. Um, it's over two time periods. So it's like the 1940s and the 1980s, uh, and it's this woman and then her grand niece. So it's it's interesting. I'm dealing with a lot of uh, a lot of new territory, a lot of old territory, a lot of death. So I guess I just can't get away from that. <laughs> So we're all trying to write around, right? Yeah, yeah. So you were talking a little bit about your next project at UCRL last week. Could you maybe give us a little preview? It's also about death. It's um, set in Terlingua, Texas, and uh, the Virgin Mary starts appearing to people. Very cool. And then they die. You know, they don't die, but they're all trying to, like... Find out when they die, if people that have died around them still think about them. I'm trying to, I personally am trying to figure out like where we go. Ah. So I'm writing it out. Isn't that interesting how the big questions you sort of have to write a novel to figure it out? I yeah. felt like people would be really angry at me when they finished this book because I feel like I asked a lot of questions and didn't really provide any answers. Yeah. And it was just sort of my way to put to like work through the questions without really giving answers. So I don't know if you have the same experience. No, that's how I write. I sort of think about like a problem that I'm de- like trying to f- understand. Like the first book I wrote was about like identity and the limits of identity, and then the second was sort of like women and aging and sort of what your value is when you lose your beauty and so it's all like questions I have in general Mm. that I'm like I should write about this and then I don't have an answer by the end but at least I'm like turning it around and around and around yeah it was interesting I I mean I love your book I love the invaders and uh Cheryl was such a fascinating character because I felt like I mean, there there were so many important questions sort of wrapped up in this woman. It's like, what do you do, you know, when you all, when you at, like on one hand have the identity of the second wife in a very closed community, but then also yourself are aging sort of out of that role. And I just, I mean, I found her absolutely fascinating. And I mean, it brought up questions for me, and I felt like I'd done everything that there was to do with beauty in this book. But I mean, it brought up new questions for me about like, oh, okay, you know, it's. I just, yeah, I found it really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's no... We're just aging and dying. What are you going to do? Yeah, but. right? <laughs> That's all books. Happiness, guys. <laughs> aging and death and terminal illness. Yeah. Like, aren't you glad you came here tonight? <laughs> Ten more years, you're going to start freaking out. <laughs> so, um, it kind of has to do with this. Like, it's one of the things I like about the book is that it starts with these, like speculative what if questions about like death and, and dealing with like the luck of having a second chance and about the body and all that kind of stuff and it like I think really like seamlessly becomes a book about like relationships like the endings are the endings for each character are, are like very intimate and very like focused on on the relationships with other people and a lot of times about like 
about sort of addressing problems that predated the the um, operation in the first place. And I really like that that surprised me. So I was curious if, if that like surprised you or if you saw the speculative thing as a way to get to that. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I think I did see, um, I never set out to really write a book about cloning. I, I set out to write a book about how the body impacts identity and what that, I mean, originally when it was about Hannah, it was meant to be sort of a love story. It was meant to be about Hannah and Sam and how this transformation impacted their relationship and how much of what a person knows about you is sort of informed by your physical self. And so I did sort of want to end up in a place of intimacy. I'm glad that came across, you know. Um, But, I mean, for me, it was never about the science and, you know, the the mechanism. The mechanism was sort of a doorway into, I think, more human truths. And, uh, you know, that's that's sort of what I was going for. Um, Glad that came across to a certain extent. Also, I was relieved that at no point in... Despite being speculative, at no point did I feel the urge to have to, like, Google something or go on Wikipedia or anything. Every time I do something that involves, like, a new science thing, I always end up having to stop and be like, what is, wait a second, what's going on? That's because there's nothing in it. I mean, there's really, like... You gave enough that, like, that all, the, all the questions that you're asking, like, enough pertinent information for those questions to be, like, relevant to the book, but not, like, all this extra stuff that like, we have to, like, like parse through. Like, oh, I thank you. That. No, I... It wasn't short on... Like it had, it had all the meaning without all of the like, confusion, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, that was because I really went out of my way not to do anything sciency with it, and because uh, if you started Wikipediaing anything in there, it's all made up. I mean, there's there's nothing there's nothing out there if you wanted to research this. I think there's a guy who thinks that he can do a head transplant, and that's. That was sort of an article that people were sending to me. Uh, but other than that, I, I don't think there's a, this technology doesn't actually exist. It more functions as a magical element within the story. So, and I'm just like the the last person who should be writing about anything science based. So I yeah I did try to intentionally like give enough that people sort of understand the broad strokes of what might have happened, but nothing specific enough that people would start questioning like. Oh, what, what about this gene? What about the... I, I don't know. I, I have no answers. <laughs> to me, you went far more deeply into the politics of whether someone's going to hide this or whether they're going to fund it. So I definitely saw your political science background in that. I thought that was one of my favorite parts of the book was like, are we going to keep this secret? What if everybody wants it? How are we going to engineer this vote? Like, even looking at all the Supreme Court stuff today where everyone's just, like, losing their mind <laughs> within 24 hours. I thought of the novel because I thought oh, how you. interesting it is, how the power dynamic... It's really about betrayal. The typical yeah. novel is really about the little betrayals and then some of the bigger ones. So, yeah, I felt the same way you did. Like, I wasn't lost, but wasn't that really something that you liked writing about, the politics? Oh, like, yes. Censoring those chapters that you were really into the, the machinations of... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of a political junkie, uh, so that I mean that was just fun for me. I mean, I I love politics, and I love sort of the thing that um, I felt was so interesting about my background in political science. The degree that I got was it's not as much about 
what you think it's about. It's not as much about policy as it is about people and sort of like peeling the roofs off of houses and understanding why people behave the way that they do and the way that you can impact that behavior. So I feel like, I mean, I'm just fascinated by politics and I really enjoyed, yeah, the sections where I got to write about it and I feel like I'm not sure I can write a book and not have some infusion of politics into it. But um, I was really interested in the sort of things that I could take from my political science background and apply to writing because you sort of understand like why does a person become more conservative as they age you know just you look at these sort of you know things that people tend to do in large numbers and sort of start looking at why and it, it unveils some really interesting answers about human nature and about our life and our society so yeah it was fun yeah out of all the characters, even like secondary, what did you feel most closely related to? That answer changed a lot throughout the writing and revision. Um, I mean, at first it was Hannah, and it was always Hannah, and then as I was writing each of the other points of view, there was a point during the writing when I would sort of stop and say, oh no, no, this is the character that's most like me. David is the one that is absolutely most like me. Connie is the one that is absolutely, Linda is, I mean, every character, I infused something that was so personal to me and something that was so true to me that um, they felt at some point like the one that was the, the truest reflection of me and not always a good reflection. Um, but I mean, there, there are also aspects to all of them that are completely unlike me. And so I always sort of circle back around to Hannah uh, just because she was my starting point. I feel like she's my ending point. And, um, you know, a couple years later, a little bit of distance, she's still the one that I can sort of get into her mind the, the most easily when I'm thinking about her. So I, I think that in the end, it's it's still got to be Hannah. Was her point of view the easiest or the quickest to write? Or did you feel like you could just kind of like fly by with one of the characters? Um, I feel like... David was the one that I could just sort of get into and just go to town. I don't, I don't know why I'd never written a male point of view before, and ever. I mean, not even in short stories. So it's just, it was interesting, and it was a departure from what I was used to. But it was really fun to sort of slip into that point of view and just sort of go because there, I, there were no restrictions. I mean, he had like as much power as anyone had in the novel even though he was still part of this system he had all of this power and all of this freedom and it was it was fun to to live in that for a little while so I feel like as foreign and as sort of scary as it was to write from a male point of view it was also one that I had uh, it went really quickly and I had a lot of fun doing it because it was like you know you get to understand a little bit what it's like to be on top I have no idea but yeah Anyone else? All right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, all right, so if you haven't yet bought your books... You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.